My name is Joanne Mahoney, and I am now Anon. Hi, everybody. I'm a member of Traditions Group in Memphis, Tennessee. You know, I, you heard me say that I was an Al-Anon. I do want to clarify what I mean by that. By being an Al-Anon, that means that I attend my home group on a regular basis. I attend my Al-Anon meetings, and I try as best I can to practice the principles of Al-Anon in my life daily. This is very important to me. I am married to an admitted alcoholic, but that doesn't make me an Al-Anon. These other things that I do is what I feel that I have the privilege to call myself an Al-Anon. I do want to thank the committee for asking me to be here. Everything has been wonderful, and you know I just won't even begin to name names other than Al and Jenny and Gay and everyone else. Uh, you know it, it's really, really super. And I want to thank the committee for this wonderful, beautiful fruit basket that I received. The room is just excellent. I'm in a great big king-size bed all by myself, and I can just waller all over it. <laughs> and also, the, the present that they gave me when I came uh, was a, a real, real nice uh, little clock that, like that, and it's an apple. A red apple with the clock in the center, and I, I do appreciate them, and I do want to thank you for it. I'll be all right in just a minute. I'm not nervous, but my hands are. That's, that's <laughs> I don't believe that my childhood was much different from any of yours, other than the fact that uh, I did take dancing, started taking when I was about four years old, four, four and a half, and uh, I taught dancing. I danced professionally for a number of years. I specialized in acrobatic dancing. But other than that, I was from an average income family. There was no drinking in our home other than maybe a glass of wine or eggnog at Christmas. But it wasn't that my family was against it. It was just that it, you know, they just didn't do it. I went to school in Memphis. I am one of few Memphians that were born and raised there. Most people are from Mississippi, Arkansas, or somewhere else, but I am a native Memphian. Went to grammar school and high school there. I always liked boys that were just a little bit older than I was. I, um, I don't know, it seemed like the boys that were my age were silly and kiddish and everything, so I liked these more mature boys, you know, several years older. So uh, I didn't like school that much. I liked to have a good time, but, uh, you know, and see people, but as far as studying and all that, I, you know, I didn't care about all that. I met this boy, I was uh, 15 years old, and I met this boy that was seven years older than I am. And this is George number one in my life. <laughs> he, uh, you know, he was older and mature and we started dating. I was 16 in November and we got married in December. Kept it a secret till February. And my mother uh, 
was a little bit surprised when George gave me all these nice clothes, you know, beautiful tops and skirts and everything for Valentine's Day. And she said, Joanne, boys don't give girls gifts like that. That's, you know, you just, that's not proper. And I said, well, Mother, you know, I mean, he likes me, and he just gave me these things. And she says, but that's not proper. And she looked at me, and she says, are you married? I said, oh, no, of course not, Mother. And she said, well, see, I never could lie very well. She looked at me again. She said, Joanne, are you sure you're not married? I said, oh, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. Well, she got the Bible out. And she said, now, I want you to put your hand on this Bible and tell me you're not married. So I put my hand on that Bible. Look at it shaking. And, it, and you know, I said, I'm, I, but, uh, you know, and I couldn't get it out. So needless to say, oh, you know what broke loose. I mean, she was so upset, and I was so upset, and my grandmother and my, my dad and everybody was crying and having a fit. They wanted me to have the marriage annulled. I said, oh, no, you know, I don't want to do that. So uh, they called my aunt and uncle, and now my aunt and uncle had, had some money, but like I said, I was from an in average income family. And my uncle offered me anything in the world that I could possibly want if I'd have the marriage annulled. He said it was not going to last six months. He offered me a brand new car if I'd have it annulled, a trip to Europe if I'd have it annulled, because it wasn't going to last but six months. A college education. And I said, oh no, you know, I want to stay married. Well, you see, I was just barely 16 years old. And I'm telling you these things uh, to just show you one of my characteristics or character defects or whatever you may call them that are very, very similar to alcoholics. I was so determined at that time. They told me it wouldn't last but six months, and I was going to prove to them no matter what. So I quit school in midterm 11th grade, and in June I called George up at work, and I said, George, don't come home. I don't love you, and I'm getting a divorce. <laughs> and if you count that up, now this boy had no idea. If you count that up, that is exactly six months. <laughs> so I proved my point, went to summer school and made up what I had missed, and went back to uh, Southside High School in Memphis and was delighted to be there. Oh, I was so glad to get out of that marriage. I didn't know what to do. After I graduated from uh, high school, uh, I met George number two in my life. Now, this boy I just absolutely adored. He was a real good-looking fella, and we dated for several years, and... We were going to get married, and his, uh, they had a, uh, well, a cafe down on, <laughs> on uh, Lamar Avenue in Memphis. And it was, you know, in not a real nice part of town. And when they found out George and I were going to get married, they bought this other place further out on Lamar, and it was called Reno's Drive-In. And that was going to be ours when we got married. So, George and I dated for several years, I don't know, four or five, I don't even remember, three, four, five, and uh, like I said, I did teach dancing, and I was in Chicago for a dancing teacher's convention, and I had three phone calls that George was going out with this waitress, this new little girl he'd hired there. 
So when I came in town, George met me at the airport and took me home. Now, he wanted me down there every night at that cafe, at that drive-in. But he wanted me to be in the back. I could stay out front while his parents were there, but when they left, he, he made a little special place back in the kitchen around the corner for me because he didn't want me to talk to the boys or anything, and I knew so many people that came in there, so he hid me in the back. And when I had to go to the ladies' room, it was just disastrous. He hated it because <laughs> I had to go to the front. But anyway, when, when George picked me up, he says, uh, Now, honey, I know you're so tired. Why don't you just stay home tonight and get some rest, and I'll see you tomorrow. And I thought, uh-huh. I said, well, I went along with him. I said, okay. So he took me home, and uh, he closed the Reno's at 1 o'clock. So I, now, although I had come back home, see, when I was, uh, when after I got my divorce and everything, I did, even though I'd been married, I still mind my mother and daddy. And I told Mother I wanted to catch a cab and go down there. I told her what was going on. And she says, oh, you can't leave the house this time of night. Well, anyway, I talked her into it, and I got this cab driver to drive at the side of the Rainos and turn the, it was a yellow cab, turn the yellow light off and with the meter running. See, because I had, I mean, I was making good money dancing and teaching and all that, so money wasn't any problem. And I waited, and sure enough, he came out, and he had that little old girl in the car with him, and he was going to take her home. He had gotten her a room two doors from him on the corner, his, and his parents. So anyway, I called him out, and I broke up with him. But, you know, I just, I mean, it just really, really hurt me. I didn't tell him about the phone calls. And I got a phone call. Two days later, he had met this girl the next day, took her out that night, and ran off to Hernando and got married. Well, I was absolutely crushed. His mother called me and uh, told me, and I just went all to pieces. So he uh, called me himself in a thought day or two later, and he said that he was so sorry, and he wanted to have the marriage annulled, and then we'd go on and get married. And I told him what I had heard my grandmother say so many times, and I had a few more words with it. Well, you so-and-so, you made your bed, and you can, you know what, well, lay in it. So even though I, I knew I really loved him, I was not going to take that. I was, you know, I just wouldn't have anything to do with him. After that, I was absolutely determined that there wasn't any male walking this earth that would ever get me involved or close enough to him or for me to care enough for him that I could be hurt like that. I would not do it no matter what. I mean, I dated a lot. I just ran wild and dancing and partying and everything every night. and. My philosophy on, in life was to do it to them before they get the chance to do it to you. And this is, this is what I did. You know, I mean, I would not date or go with anyone that long because if it started getting the least bit serious, I just quit dating them. I just wouldn't do it. And this boy, this George number two's mother called me. It had been, I don't know year or maybe maybe not quite that long, several months anyway, and said that they needed a, a waitress 
down at the uh, cafe and wanted to know if I would uh, work there for a couple of weeks until they could find someone. And her name was Gertie, and I said, well, Gertie, I've never done waitress work in my life. And she said, well, Joanne, you know everybody here, and you know everything, and where it is, and what we do, and how. And she said, you could do it. So anyway, I asked my mother, and mother never had a fit. Oh, you can't be a waitress. Oh, no. You can't. I said, oh, please. You know, well, anyway, she finally consented, and I had a ball. I loved it. Uh, while I was working there, George was working, and he married a blonde. Now, before Al-Anon, now this is before Al-Anon, I never had any friends and could not get along with blondes. I mean, no matter what, I just couldn't get along with them. Uh, thank goodness, you know, now, after Al-Anon, some of my dearest friends are blondes. So, I mean, but this girl that he married, she was blonde, and I called her a straw-headed you know what? So uh, they told me, and she went down to the cafe all the time. She was down there in the evenings and everything, and then she'd ride home or go home with his parents, and they'd take her home. But they told me I did not have to wait on her. So I love to antagonize her and antagonize George all the time, and I'd talk to these other boys and flirt around, and it was killing him because he, I mean, he really, you know, I, I know he loved me. I know he did, and I know I loved him too, but I wasn't going to give in. One night, one night, and I didn't have to wait on her. They told me that, and thank goodness I didn't because I don't believe I could have. One night while I was working in there, this man came in and he had on a uniform and he asked me for some change for the cigarette machine and I looked at him and I thought that was the best looking man I had ever seen in my life. When I gave him his change, I squeezed him on the hand to make sure I got his attention. And that is my husband, Milton. I did get his attention. He came in, and come to find out, he was a city fireman, and he was collecting for muscular dystrophy that night. You know, on his off time, they had on the uniforms, and it was a muscular dystrophy drive. But anyway, Milton came back in the next night, and he had a date. Not only did he have a date, he had a date with a blonde. Not only was she a blonde, she had her hair rolled up, rolled up in curlers. And I thought, I have never in my life, somebody going on a date with the hair rolled up in a public place, blonde at that. But anyway, anyway, you know, I waited on their booth and I squeezed him on the hand all the time to make sure, you know, he, you know, he was getting the message. So Milton and I started dating. And I knew that I had absolutely found my knight in shining armor. I, there was no question about it. I mean, I just, it seems like it was just like love at first sight. I just adored him. He worked 24 hours on and 24 hours off, and then uh, every other week he was off three days in a row. Well, he'd go home and shower and uh, pick me up. You know, every day he was off, and we would proceed to go drinking. You know, I mean, we, we'd start and we'd just start drinking. And, you know, I drank with him for, oh gosh, I don't know how long. And 
I thought it rather strange that no matter what we did, it always pertained to drinking. We never went to a movie or, you know, anything like that. But, I mean, we'd go to a ball game. I mean, you know, we took a bottle and we drank. And I thought, well, you know, I've never dated anybody that didn't take me to a, a movie or something where you didn't drink. But, you know, it was okay because I was having a good time and I didn't think he'd ever ask me to marry him. Well, finally he did. We went together six months. <laughs> and uh, he asked me to marry him and I, I, oh, I just knew that, you know, we would live just this wonderful fairy tale life. I mean, it never, never occurred to me that we wouldn't. We were married three days, and uh, Milton came in the house, and he said, Honey, Billy and them are out in the car, and they want me to go have a beer with them. You don't care, do you? I said, Well, of course not, darling. <laughs> I did not see darling again for three days. <laughs> I was absolutely crushed. I did not know what in the world had happened to him. I was terrified. I was, I was scared to death. I called every hospital in town. And he wasn't at any of them. I called the, the city jail. I called the county jail. I knew that he wouldn't leave me, his dear, sweet little wife. You know, we hadn't been married three days. But anyway, he came home, and he was so sorry and so humble, and he said he really didn't mean to do that, that... Uh, they just got to drinking and got to partying, and he just didn't realize it. Well, I mean, and, you know, I believed him. Because, yeah, I really believed him because, you know, I, I think he really meant that. So anyway, I mean, we still had a good time. And like I say, I, I drank with Milton for, oh, several years after we married. And uh, about this time, uh, we hadn't been married too terribly long, just a few years and he just adored my parents, and they got along real well. And uh, I had lost my grandmother just right after Milton and I married. And then in uh, 1960, my mother died. And I have a sister that's 10 years younger than I am, and I had a brother that was 12 years younger. So when mother died, it was Milton that said that we needed to help take care of my younger brother and sister. It never occurred to me. When he wasn't drinking, he was the kindest, dearest, most reliable, sweetest human being that there could ever be. But when he was, he was the meanest son of you-know-what that God ever put in this earth, on this earth. I mean, it was just, you know, I, and we talked about this. Uh, we talked about it all the time. He, uh, you know, if he just wouldn't drink like he did, everything would be fine. And he said, that's right. He says, I don't know why. I don't mean to do these things. I said, I know you don't. But anyway, we moved in with my daddy and my younger sister and brother. And Milton was still drinking. And, you know, I mean, he running wild. He'd go to the grocery store to get a loaf of bread, and I wouldn't see him for a week. And, uh, it, you know, I mean, this is just how crazy our life was. But anyway, it had reached the point that, you know, I had been to the doctor. I'd gone down to my weight to 104 pounds. Uh, I had been on any and every kind of tranquilizer known to man, and none of them worked. I mean, absolutely none of them. So 
my doctor, or I was going to the doctor to get vitamin shots twice a week to help build me up. And my doctor suggested that, you know, I talk to a psychiatrist. And I said, I will do anything because I was, I was just crazy. I mean, just absolutely insane. Shook all time like I'm doing now. But I settled down a little bit now. But um, anyway, I went to see this psychiatrist, and this was George number three in my life. And he talked to me, and he suggested that uh, I go into the hospital, uh, that he felt like he could help me. And I'm telling you this, uh, I want the alcoholics that are in this room, believe you me, you aren't the only one that had been locked up in the loony bin. <laughs> because I was there, I don't know how long, I know over three, uh, over three weeks, I really don't know. I mean, it, uh, over a month, I'm sure, or maybe longer. But I had insulin shock one day and electric shock the next day. So, uh, I was there, and all of a sudden, Milton wasn't coming to see me. It had been 10 days. They wanted me to go down to this recreation room and make the weed those baskets and do all that leather stuff and everything, and I told them in no uncertain terms that I was not associating with people like that, that I wasn't going down there with those crazy people. Now, here I am locked up, you know, just rum-dumb crazy, with the shock treatments and everything else, but I still wasn't associating with those nuts. And I didn't. But uh, some of them noticed that uh, my husband didn't come to see me, and there was a limited uh, number of visitors that you could have anyway, just very immediate family. And there was just a little girl, one of the patients there, that came around every day and brought me a bouquet of flowers. And uh, she felt sorry for me, you know, and I was just laughing that stuff up. But come to find out, this girl was going around to all the other patients' rooms stealing flowers and bringing them to me. <laughs> I mean, another thing I want to tell you, too, I mean, you know, ask me to do anything, but don't demand or tell me that I have to or that I cannot. Before I checked in that hospital, they told me that there was absolutely to be, you know, no uh, medication no alcohol of any sort, none at all. Well, my daddy was running a liquor store at the time, so I asked him to get me, and he did. It was a, a pint of uh, peppermint schnapps, a pint of vodka, a pint of bourbon, a pint of gin, and a pint of something else. I don't remember what. But anyway, five bottles, and I put them in my suitcase, and I took them to the hospital. Now, I never opened one of them. After I was dismissed from the hospital, they were still full, the seal wasn't broken, but they told me I couldn't have them, so I was going to, by golly, do it or bust. And I did, and I don't guess they ever knew it because I, I, you know, I didn't drink any of them, but, you know, I was going they said I should, they shouldn't have said I couldn't do it. Well, this is another characteristic, you know, that, uh, after coming into Al-Anon that, you know, I look back on and I can certainly readily admit to. After I got out of, after I got out of the hospital, oh, by the way, I didn't see my doctor, I must tell you this too, I didn't see my doctor for over a week after I was in there. It was over a week had gone by and then this other doctor started coming by to see me. 
come to find out my doctor, Dr. George, so-and-so, this man was married. He had a wife and 11 children. He left her and he left me locked up in the crazy house and he ran off with another woman. <laughs> so anytime I see or meet a George now, I am absolutely terrified. I just back up. I mean, I, literally, that is the honest goodness truth because these Georges in my life just, oh, I don't know. Well, Milton and I talked a long time about, or all the time about, you know, how if he just wouldn't drink so much that everything, you know, would be all right. And we discussed this, and now I have to tell you part of Milton's story in order to tell you how I reacted to it. There's no way I can explain to you my reaction to his drinking if I don't tell you a little bit about how things were in our home. And uh, I thought as his wife should be able to make him understand, you know, if he'd only have one or two drinks and then maybe sip. You know, I mean, that's what I did. I'd, I'd go out and I'd have a few drinks, and if I got to feeling it, you know, too much, I'd say, well, now, wait a minute, I've got to just have plain ice water and or maybe just sip, but usually just water. And he couldn't do that. And I said, yes, you can. You know, yes, you can. Just, you know, control yourself a little bit or don't have so many drinks before we go. You know, and he he agreed with me, and but it never worked out. And you know, I thought as his wife, it was my responsibility to get through to this man, to make him understand if he'd only drink like I thought he should, everything would be all right. So I mean, it never did work. <coughs> we tried any and everything imaginable. He went to uh, doctors and uh, he went to psychiatrists. Our minister, whom he thought an awful lot of, and I did too, counseled him and talked to him. Milton would go up to his study all the time and talk to him and he'd talk to me. Our, doc our doctor had long since said, Joanne, you may as well divorce him. He's nothing but a bum and he never will be anything else but that. But see, I love this man, and I knew sooner or later I would find out the answer or what I could do to make him not drink so much. Our minister had reached the point, now this is a minister now, he said, Joanne, I see no alternative for you but you to divorce Milton. You know, he just will never work Right. I mean, he won't work out, and his drinking is so bad that you really need to just get out of this marriage. Now, you know, when your doctor and your minister tells you something like that, it should kind of make you wake up a little bit. But I kept feeling deep down there was something else that I could do, something else I could say to him to make him understand if he just would drink like I thought he ought to or not drink at all, everything would be okay. Things had gotten so bad. He'd been in and out of jail, and I don't, I, you know, I don't know how how many times. And we had talked about having children, and we were married like in eight, two months, being married eight years. When we had a little uh, a little boy, and he's Milton Jr. He lives in Atlanta now, and I miss him. But uh, 
we talked about everything would be all right and he wouldn't drink like that. And I can remember so vividly how the drinking did continue and how Milton and I would just, I, I would beg him, he loved to take our son with him, and I would beg him not to take this boy, I mean, little toddler, little bitty thing, I would beg him, and I can remember standing just pulling on this child to keep Milton from taking, because Milton would get in the car, I mean, he loved this boy. When he wasn't drinking, he was a dear, wonderful, sweet father. But uh, take the, taking, I mean, with pistols in the car and drunk and everything, so, uh, you know, I, I was just getting crazier and crazier. Then we talked about, well, if we had another child and we had a little girl, that surely everything would be all right. You know, that he knew that he wouldn't drink anymore. Two years and two months later, after our son was born, we had a daughter. And I knew everything was going to be perfect then. We had the perfect family. God had blessed us with the little boy first and then the little girl. And, oh, I was so happy, and I knew our life was going to be wonderful. The day Milton was born, he, did, he came to the hospital. I mean, the day Rena, Rena, our daughter, was born, he came to the hospital, and I didn't see Milton again for five days. So, you know, I was absolutely crushed. I mean, I, I, I just didn't know what to do. I had, I had reached the point that I was so desperate and so crazy and, you know, I, I was just absolutely, I had just practically given up. And a little bit after that, I mean, I was the type of person, I could not be quiet when he, you know, I mean, if I had been able to keep my mouth shut, there wouldn't be any, as many problems in our home. I was always the type of person that I would say immediately what I thought, you know, didn't care where I was or who it, who it was around it, all the time. My mouth got me in so much trouble it was unreal. He would just, Milton was the type, he begged me just to quit talking. When we first got married, all I, all I ever said was the S word and D-A-M-N and H-E-L-L. That's all I ever said because Milton nearly had a fit when I said then, a lady doesn't talk like that, he said. Well, you're looking at somebody that developed the most profound profanity vocabulary you would ever want to see or hear. And, you know, I'm not proud of this, but boy, I mean, I could throw these words out and uh, just ran at him, and I'm the one that the neighbors thought was an absolute nut because I'd be raising cane and go outside and holler and, and uh, cuss worse than any sailor, and he was trying to get me in the house to shut me up. But, you know, it seemed perfectly normal to me. After a while, it had reached the point I had uh, followed Milton for years and years trying to, you know, get him to come home with me when he was drinking. I never could. You know, I've heard uh, other people talk and say that they, you know, would go and drag their husband out of these joints. I tried to get Milton to come home with me, and I may ride the roads forever and walk in some place and try to get him to come home with me, and I never one time got that man to leave with me. Not once. So then I decided, well, I'll just show him. So I would ride the roads and look, and I mean, just for hours, I'd go up in Tipton County, all over North Memphis, East Memphis, South Memphis, West Memphis, just any and everywhere until I found this car. 
and I would have me a little bottle, and in Memphis, then you had to have liquor by the drink. I would have me a little bottle, and I would walk in, not say one word to this man, sit up at the counter, mix me one drink, maybe two, and turn around and leave. Now, see, I mean, I had accomplished exactly what I wanted to. And, you know, I was obsessed with doing this. So, you know, I know there's no question in my mind that my reactions and my effects uh, and the effects of the disease of alcohol and alcoholism on me had made me sicker than he ever was. Milton did most of the drinking. He was the one that did the drinking, but Joanne is the one that ended up with the brain damage. I mean, literally, literally. He can, we were, I was talking this weekend to someone uh, uh, about, you know, how he forgot and how he was drinking. I said, no, Milton can remember more than I can. I mean, it's true. <laughs> but anyway, it had reached the point that I knew I loved Milton. But I didn't like him anymore. There wasn't anything I liked about him other than when he wasn't drinking. And I had failed as his wife because, as I said, it was my responsibility to get through to that man somehow or other to make him stop drinking, and I couldn't do it. So I had just absolutely gave up. He uh, asked me if uh, oh, I, I had prayed the only thing I know to do, I had worn out the drapes looking, you know, for him to come home. And as soon as he'd walk in the door, I'd pounce on him like a wild tiger and rant and rave and cuss and everything and walk the floor. No wonder the boy didn't want to come home. You know, I mean, he knew what he was getting ready to get into, but it didn't seem like anything wrong with that to me. But anyway, I had been praying. Like I said, I had really given up that Milton would call AA. We had been to a meeting, oh, in the late 50s or early 60s down on Madison Avenue, and we walked up a jillion steps, and it was an Al-Anon meeting, and he, he went into AA, and his brother and his brother's wife was with us. And when all of us got out of there, we thought we'd gotten into some kind of weird, I don't know what. We all went to a bar after that. <laughs> I mean, literally. I mean, they were saying things that I didn't understand what they were talking about. But uh, I knew the only hope that I heard or knew anything about was Milton would call AA. So I asked God to, you know, please, please have Milton call AA. So one day Milton, he was getting over, trying to get over a hangover, and he was the type that he was, gosh, had the gosh awfulest hangovers I've ever seen in my life. I mean, he'd pull out his hair off and all that and walk the floor and shake and grit his teeth and just, just crazy things. And... He said, well, I'm so sick, what am I going to do? He says, do you think I need to go back to another hospital? I said, what for? They never helped before. And he said, well, what am I going to do? I said, Milton, I don't know what you're going to do. He says, well, uh, well, help me. I said, I can't help you. Now, this was before Al-Anon. I said, I can't help you. He says, well, what about AA? And I looked at him. I said, well, I don't know. He said, do you think I should call AA? I said, well, you may as well, because it can't hurt a DAMN thing. But you see, I had been praying this prayer that, you know, it was about a year and a half, maybe two years, that I'd been praying this prayer that he would call AA, because that was the only thing left for us to try. 
Well, he said, well, I'm too sick. Will you call them for me? And I said, H-E-L-L, no, if you want them, you call them. And he said, well, will you look up the number? I said, I'll be glad to. I looked up the number, and he called. And two men came to our house, and they had a book in their hand, and it was about like that. And I thought, oh, dear God, these men are going to preach to us. I thought it was the Bible, and I thought, that, you know, I cannot handle this. I just cannot handle this. But when they came in, they smiled, and they asked me if I would make some coffee, and they wanted me to listen to I said, sure, I'll be glad to. So I made the coffee, and I listened to them, and I don't remember about what they said. I don't remember a whole lot about that. But it wasn't the Bible. It was another book. So they asked us to go to a, a meeting. And it ended up that they picked us up the next night and we went to our first uh, open AA meeting. And it was a speaker meeting. And when we walked in that room, I thought, dear God, I know we've gotten into a cult. <laughs> That was the strangest looking place I had ever seen. All these crazy signs on the wall and these dumb slogans. First things first. Well, if it's first, how can it not be first? What does that mean? Easy does it. And I thought, how corny. And, and let go and let God, well, you know, let go of what? You know, I, I just didn't under, understand any of it. <laughs> but it, this was our last resort. I mean, it really was. We, you know, I thought, well, I'll just go. And I'll stay here. But and the people, the people looked strange to me too. They sat there and they were drinking coffee and everybody talking at the same time. And some of them looked exactly like what I thought an alcoholic should look like. I mean, they had the big red nose and red face and sitting around and some of them with no teeth. And I thought, well, you know, I'll, if this is what it takes for him to get sober, you know, and quit drinking, I, you know, I'll stay here. And it happened, just so happened that the man that was talking was the man that I had worked with at Julius Lewis downtown. And his name, he's, he's gone now. He's been sober. He was sober forever and ever, it seemed like. Uh, he is not with us anymore. He's in that big meeting. But his name was J.T. Calvet, so I can break his anonymity. And J.T. was uh, a car man, had a car dealership in Millington, at that time and JT got to talking and he told the most terrible terrible things about himself and all these people were laughing and I looked at them and I thought there's nothing funny this is really sad this is pitiful this man and people are laughing at him and he kept talking and all of a sudden I found myself laughing too and you know and I just thoroughly enjoyed it I knew these people had something. I didn't understand exactly what it was, but they had something. And we enjoyed that talk, and uh, we talked to him afterwards, and I did. And some of the women came up to me and said, Now, honey, you come back because there's a meeting for you. <laughs> and I told him, I said, Look, he's drunk, not me. I don't need any meetings. And then we said, Well, you just come back. We really need you. I thought, they need me? Why? But anyway, we did go back to that new group, uh, I think it was two or three days later, for the next meeting. No, we went to another meeting after that the next night, and then two days later. 
And when we walked in the door, there was a closed meeting of AA and a closed meeting of Al-Anon. And one of these ladies met me at the door and grabbed me by my hand, and they said, now, she said, now, honey, you come on into this other room for us. This is a program for you. You don't need to worry about your alcoholic anymore. Let the people in the AA room take care of him. He is not your responsibility. I breathed a sigh of relief. I really did because I thought this man was my responsibility. I thought it's his wife, my wifely duty, that it was my... But when they told me that, I believed them. And I walked in this, that room, and thank goodness they let me talk. I mean, they did. And, oh, gosh. I looked around the room, and all of them were sitting there, and they were just smiling, and they were so peaceful and serene-looking. And I looked at them, and I said, Y'all don't live with the kind of alcoholic I live with, or you couldn't sit there and be so passive and peaceful and calm. And they just looked at me and said, oh, yeah, this, this too shall pass, you know. <laughs> so they listened to me, and I ran it, and I raved, but there was a time that I had to shut up and listen. And I am so very grateful to that group, you know. They tolerated me when I was absolutely intolerable, and I know I was. One of the, one of the ladies in that group, I had not asked her to be my sponsor, but she sponsored me for many, many years. And I had, you know, never asked her, but she was one that would, you know, I'd talk to her, they just lived a, a block and a half from us, and her husband was Milton's sponsor. Her name was Betty, and Betty just died about a, a month ago, and it was just a real sad, Sad, sad thing. She she helped me so much in Al-Anon. I was in the hospital, and uh, we came into the program in uh, the early part of February of 1973. And Milton drank again, but it just happened that I was in the hospital when he drank, so I missed that last drunk, thank God. <laughs> but Betty would call me every day, and she'd say, Don't come home yet, Joanne. Read page so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so in our One Day at a Time book because this group that I went to, that was the only literature, literature that they used. I did not know that there were any other books or any other literature other than our One Day at a Time book. And they would have me read in this meeting. The people in the room would read a page and then discuss it. Well... I, first of all, I could hardly read. I mean, literally. I, my mind was so crazy, and I could hardly read at all. And, and anonymity, you know, that word, and some of these other words, I didn't have any idea what they meant. But after I would read the page and have to comment on it, I couldn't. I could not remember one thing that I had read. Now, I could listen to someone else talk, and, you know, I could understand and get something out of it, but I could not, I was so sick that I could not remember anything and I couldn't comment on what I had read. I had no idea what I'd read. This is the shape I was in by the time I got to Al-Anon. You know, and I thought he was sick. I had no idea there was anything wrong with me because I told him there wasn't. But anyway, I went to that group and those ladies and Betty helped me so much. I mean, it is just 
unbelievable. They they loved me and they were patient with me and they encouraged me to come to the meeting meetings and thank goodness they did not tell me come to six meetings and uh decide. You know, they they told me to come to the meetings until I wanted to come to the meetings. And this is what I've done and uh February the third of this year I just celebrated twenty five years in Al Anon. And believe you me, that in itself is a miracle. Because I used to ask them, how long have I got to come to these you-know-what-all meetings? But after a while, I found out, we've been going to that group about a year and a half, or I found out that there was more literature than that one day at a time book. And we were supposed to use the same 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous other than the... Uh, one word in the 12th step, we say uh, others, where uh, in the 12 steps it says alcoholics, and that, you know, AA had been so gracious to allow us to use these steps. Well, that group didn't use those steps. They had made up their own steps. Well, I found all these things out, and I was just, oh, I was just going crazy. You know, I just couldn't figure out why they were doing this. And we started having meetings. There were about six of us, four, five or six, on the opposite nights that they met. They met on Tuesday and Thursday nights, so we started having meetings on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday night, and we would study the literature. I went to the library and got every book I could find on Al-Anon, and we would have meetings, you know, on their off nights, and finally they came to us and they said, well, that's just fine if you have meetings, but uh, we are going to uh, tell you that you find you a building and you find you a place to have your meetings. Don't try to mess up our group. And they gave us a, pot, a pot, coffee pot and we went on our way. But the, uh, the alcoholics, the AAs, were doing the same thing we were. See, they were having meetings on the off night. And this is when we formed Traditions Group. And believe you me, if you haven't been in the beginning of forming a new group, you just don't know what you're missing. <laughs> oh. We, you know, we didn't know anything. I mean, really, we didn't know anything at, at all other than uh, what is suggested from our World Service Office, the, the guidelines that are, are perfectly clear that we're supposed to go by. So this is what we tried to do. And... I was elected group representative when I had no earthly idea what a group representative was. I had never even heard of a group representative. And I said, well, what is that? Well, anyway, our group was formed on an off year, and I was elected uh, and served uh, the one year as group representative, and then I was re-elected to serve our three-year term. And... Oh, well, by the way, I was told, you know, and they got me ordered. We ordered handbooks, and they said, read the handbooks, and then you will know. And there were four handbooks, and this is what I did. And when I went to assembly, I would ask questions. I bugged them to death. I'd raise my hand because something was going on that I didn't think was the way it should be by the book. So I'd say, well, now, why are we doing so-and-so when it says right here? And I'd read it to them, and... So, um, you know, I was something else. After that four-year time as group representative, I was elected uh, to serve as district representative. And, you know, I served my three-year terms as district representative, and then I was uh, 
elected or appointed, I don't remember how the, the, our coordinator deal, I served as three years as literature coordinator. And in between this time, I was an Alateen sponsor. And believe you me, any of you out there that have the opportunity to work and be an Alateen sponsor, please, please do it. We need them desperately. And for me, I received so much help from these kids. You know, they know, say for instance, it's the father that's the alcoholic, we'll say it that way. You know, they, they know what's wrong with daddy. He's drinking and he's drunk. But what in the name of thunder is wrong with mother? You know, she is raising H-E-double-L and she's hollering and she's cussing and fighting and everything. What's wrong with her? She's not even drinking. They know what's wrong with daddy, but they don't know what's wrong with, with you know, the, the mother. And, you know, I learned this from these kids. And their program is the same as Al-Anon, just identical to Al-Anon, other than they're teenagers. It is a part of Al-Anon. And those kids, I mean, it was just a joy. I mean, it, was, it got pretty touchy there for a while when I sponsored them because I expected them to have an, uh, an Alateen meeting. And In fact, they fired me one time, and then they asked me to come back after several weeks because I told them they don't have an Alateen meeting, I mean, Alateen meeting and have a... They were trying to play in one of these times, can you top this story? And, but anyway, it worked out, and I did love them, and it was, it's a rewarding, very rewarding experience. So after I served as literature coordinator, I'd been going back and forth to Nashville, and Nashville is where we had our assemblies at that time. For all those years, and I told Milton, I said, that's it, I'm getting out of service work. No more, you know, I have served my time, that's it. So he said, oh no, you'll come back for something else. I said, no, I won't either now. I, you know, I prayed about this, and you know, I'm just, just I, I've done all I can do. And that's it. I was eligible to stand for delegate, and they asked everyone in the room that were eligible to stand for delegate to please stand up and come to the front of the room and give you the time served and what you've done, and uh, then they would vote. Well, I did this, and I told them what I had done, and that, uh, you know, I felt that I had served enough time, and it was time for someone else to carry on. So I sat down. It ended up everyone else that was eligible gave their their uh, what qualifications as to what the, the different uh, service offices that they had uh, done, and they all sat down. So then everybody had to go back up there, and I was privileged to be elected to serve as our area delegate for the state of Tennessee. And I had absolutely no intention of, of standing and accepting this. I mean, absolutely no intention. But I believe in my case that this was a God-given experience. It was undoubtedly the most rewarding, humbling experience that I have ever had. To think that I could go and represent our state at our World Service Conference and be in the room 
with all of these other people from all over the country that felt toward Al-Anon like I did. See, Al-Anon had given me my sanity back. It had saved my life. And then when they called, our, had the roll call and called our name, I mean, it, it just about blew me away. I mean, it really, really did. It was, it was such a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. To, and being able to meet Lois W. and be in the room and, and talk to her and listen to her and share with her. And one time she says, well, how are all my dear friends in Tennessee? Uh, a most gracious lady. And, you know, this is something that were it not for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and not for the program of Al-Anon, you know, I would never have experienced this. Absolutely never. Especially when, you know, thinking that, you know, sooner or later I'd get through with going to those meetings, you know. Now, you see, I love my meetings. And I feel like if I'm not at my meetings, somebody's going to say something that I needed to hear and I won't hear it. So I feel a responsibility for this. I, I, you know, I, I cannot urge people enough to, uh, you know, be sure that, you know, you attend your meetings and talk to people. You know, our fellowship has enabled me to have friends just all over the country. I mean, it is, it is unbelievable. You know, I, I see so many faces here, people that I know and that I love, and I don't have to be alone anymore. You know, I could be in a crowd, and I, I used to, you know, I would feel like, well, it's just me, and I'm all alone. But, you know, I don't have to do that anymore. I have a program that's called Al-Anon that has given me the love and the warmth that I had needed all my life. I was searching and didn't know what I was searching for. You know, I had no idea, absolutely no idea. I believe in sponsorship real, real strongly. I had been in Al-Anon several years, and we had our uh, state convention in Memphis, and I met this lady. She's a little bitty lady, just not even five feet tall, and she was absolute dynamite. This lady would say it just the way it was. I mean, she didn't beat around the bush, she didn't mince any words, and she had started Alateen in Memphis. And I knew I wanted what that lady had. She just sparkled and she just gleamed. And her name is Josephine. And I asked Josephine if she would be my sponsor. And she agreed to do it. And I knew that Josephine would tell me what I needed to hear. Not what I wanted to hear, but what I needed to hear. And she wouldn't mince any words about it. So she, she is, uh, well, she's in her 80s. She's had some health problems. And she's not active in Al-Anon anymore. But I know this lady has more Al-Anon in her one little finger than I could ever, ever have. I just keep striving and keep praying and just keep hoping that, you know, maybe I'll get it if I work hard enough. Josephine used to tell me all the time that 
lots and you will see she would she said joanne you will see there's lots of people that come to al-anon lots and lots of people but there will be very few that really get or understand what al-anon is all about she says but you need to come and go to the meetings and be there and maybe and, and apply these principles to your life daily and the principles are the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, and, and try to live as best you can the way that it is suggested that you do. And this is what I've tried to do. It really is. I, I do have the privilege to sponsor other people in Al-Anon. And this is something else that I believe it's a God-given opportunity for me. Some of these girls can call me up, and I might, just because I've been in Al-Anon, you know, for a number of years, you know, I'm no authority on Al-Anon. I mean, I, I can only share, you know, what I understand about it and how I feel and what, what I believe Al-Anon teaches me, but I'm certainly no authority. But I can be having a bad day. And one of them will call me up and talk to me, and it is just a blessing. You know, I believe this is God's work, because they help me so much more than I help them. And I am so grateful for them. I mean, I, I just am so grateful. It just, it's, it's unbelievable. I do want to tell you our, uh, our children, Milton Jr. and our daughter Rena always went to meetings with us when they were little bitty things. They'd say if, if you know it was a night that we weren't going, they'd say, "Well, aren't we going to a meeting tonight?" Because they loved it. I mean, little old bitty things. I think they were like six and eight or seven and five at the time, but there was room that they could stay in, and they went with us and they loved it. These these two. This young man and this young lady now, I mean, they're grown, of course. They went to Alateen. You know, they know what our program is all about. They went to Alateen, I don't remember how long, several years. And I am so grateful for the fact that whether either one of them need the program of Alcoholics Anonymous or the program of Al-Anon, they know where to go to get their help. And you will be here for them to help them. And, you know, what more could I ask for? They, they see and they know that Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon works because they've seen their mother and their daddy attend their meetings and try as best they can to live by what our program suggests. And I think this is so important. So if you have young children or, or teenagers, encourage them to go to Alateen. It will help them so much. It helps the whole family. There's no question about that. Our life is so good now. I mean, it really is. Like I said, where on earth could I go or what other type organization could I be associated with and find the love and the friends that I have in Al-Anon. 
it just it just absolutely amazes me and it's people see I didn't care about other people I never really didn't care about other people people before I started going to Al-Anon I loved my family and I cared about them but as far as outsiders they meant nothing to me absolutely nothing I had friends but so what you know I'd get another one if that would get mad because like I said my mouth I would just do or say anything to them I didn't care but see, Alanine teaches me that I have a responsibility as best I can to live and practice these principles daily in my life and try to be an example of, as best I can of what Alanine is supposed to be. And I have had to work, and I have to work daily. I have to ask God to help me in the morning, and I have to thank Him at night. And I have to watch my mouth because, like I say, my mouth, I mean, uh, old habits are hard to break. And this is something I'm aware of. I'm aware of all the time. But, you know, uh, God has been so good to me. He not only is, uh, I mean, he's given us so much. Just unbelievable. Our son lives in Atlanta now. And I don't especially like that. I mean, I like Atlanta, but I'd rather have him closer to home. But... You know, I did. You know, I do get to see him on occasion. I talk to him quite frequently, and I called yesterday. Thought maybe I'd get to see him. Well, he's gone to Jacksonville, Florida, for the weekend, so I won't get to see him. But he's a dear boy. He owns a tanning salon here, and uh, he's just a very, very special young man. He's about six three, and he's about this broad and little hips. So shaved his head, but he is just a love and apple of our lives and uh, this is the child that uh, you know I would pull Milton and I would pull back and forth that you know he took drinking with him but this 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 boy turned out real well Milton says he's majoring in girls and cars right now so I don't guess there's any chance for him to get married I mean he's still dating it's just girls and cars Brought the girl home at Easter, and she's a darling girl, just precious. I really like her, but I hadn't heard anything about marriage. And you're going to see my chest swell up and my, my shoulders rear back, and I am here to tell you that our daughter, who is just a precious, precious girl, she's 30 now, or 31. She just turned 31. She's married to a wonderful young man that... Had I been able to pick a son-in-law, I could never have picked one any better. He is precious, and he is wonderful to her. He is just, I just adore him. And, you know, I, I really love him. And they blessed us four weeks ago with a brand-new granddaughter. And when I talk about this little precious thing... Milton and I had thought that we never, ever would be grandparents. Oh, she is an absolute jewel. Looks at you with those big, dark, dark blue eyes, and I just melt. <laughs> Thank goodness Rena wants mother over there every day to help her. So, hey, hey, Mama goes, and oh, I work so hard, you know. <laughs> taking care of that little adorable thing. Mm, she's darling. Her name is Cameron. C-A-M-R-Y-N Elise. And, you know, she is just, she's just wonderful. 
I mean, and Milton and I both, we're, we're just beside ourselves with that. And she's planning on having more, and I hope she does. But we are so grateful. You know, I was always someone that wanted to be wanted and needed to be needed and loved to be loved. And this is where I found it. This right here is where I found it. You know, I did leave out. I want to tell you real quickly. I made uh, Milton's sponsor and my sponsor, or the, the first uh, girl that sponsored me, be over because I had done such terrible things to Milton. Like I said, I was so strong, and Milton used to talk about how his whole body ached when he drank. And uh, I made sure that Harold and Betty were over at the house. I do want to. I want to tell you this, and I, I almost forgot. You know, I guess God decided I better tell it. That uh, he would talk about how his whole body would ache, and I'd hear him in, in these open discussion meetings, and I'd get so sick of listening to him. So I made sure Betty and Harold, now they knew what I had done. And Milton would pass out anywhere, like in the halls, out in the carport, in the yard, in the in the den in the bathroom anytime he passed out I would literally try to beat the H-E-double-L out of him I would do knee drops see I was real strong I would do knee drops and every, just everything well no wonder that boy's body ached <laughs> and I thought he would just be furious absolutely furious but you know he took it real well <laughs> thank God for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous Okay, then I knew there was something else that I, I needed to tell him too, and I was concerned about that because he used to always drink it. He talked about this, how he would drink until he, he just, it wouldn't stay down anymore. It would, he would drink it and it'd hit his stomach and boom, it'd come up. And it did. But I found out, and I made sure Betty and Harold were over at the house that night too. I found out that there was something I could do about that to kind of hurry this, this, throwing up along, I used to pour, and, and I told Milton in front of Betty and Harold that I would pour syrup of Epitac in his whiskey. Well, no wonder he came up. You know, I wanted him to hurry up and get off this drunk. So, I mean, this is how crazy I was thinking there was absolutely nothing wrong with me when I got to Al-Anon. I mean, just, just very few of the things. I didn't have enough sense to keep my mouth shut. But Al-Anon has just absolutely given me my sanity and saved my life, literally, because I believe that I would have killed him. In fact, he was passed out. He was passed out in the bed one day. He was trying to get off of a drunk. The children weren't there. And he used to ride around with an arsenal. You know, I, I rode around with an arsenal in, in the car, shotguns, rifles, pistols, and everything, to keep him from getting them. And I had one thirty-two pistol hid in my dresser drawer. Well, like I said, Rena and little Milton weren't there, and Milton was passed out, and I knew that I had to, you know, I just had to do this, so I got the pistol, and I loaded it up, and I was going to kill him, because I didn't know any other answer. This was before our fellowship, before we went, started going to meetings, and I pulled that pistol out, and I, I loaded it up, and I aimed it at, aimed it at him, and this overwhelming feeling and this voice came to me what are you doing you can't do this see I was going to kill him I was literally going to kill him and I know that was God doing for me what I was absolutely incapable of doing for myself 
absolutely incapable. So, you know, I know this, this slogan that you hear. See, I know that, you know, that my husband and I are both are miracles, but it's all due to, you know, the program of Al-Anon and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and people just like all of you. You taught me to love and you taught me to care and you taught me to share and it's, you know, it's just wonderful. I mean, I, I, I cannot stress how much I have received from people just like you. And I do want to thank you again for having me. I'm afraid I've talked too long. I got wound up and I talked about an hour and ten minutes, I think. But anyway, thank you again.